Welcome back to the program. We celebrate and mark births and weddings and deaths. But what are we marking? What are we celebrating, really? These are moments in time, the background and history and joy and sorrow of which have gone on for years before or may come years into the future. Clearly, to understand any of these things, especially death, we must first understand the fullness of life. In some ways, it's counterintuitive. It runs counter to the unique American notion of being in the moment. Or perhaps, as Woody Allen said, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering. And it's all over much too soon. We're going to talk about this today with a guest who knows a lot about the subject of death, both from his own personal experience and from his work as a death row lawyer. David Dow is the Cullen Professor at the University of Houston Law Center and a visiting professor of history at Rice University. His previous book, The Autobiography of an Execution, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's the founder of the Texas Innocence Network to assist wrongfully convicted inmates and he's a specialist on death penalty law. It is my pleasure to welcome David Dow to the program to talk about his newest work, Things I've Learned from Dying, a book about life. David Dow, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm very happy to be talking to you. It's great to have you here. I want to talk first, before we talk about some of your your more personal experiences, a little bit about the work that you do and the frustration of it and what that has taught you Because, as you discuss, in so many of the cases you handle, so many of the death row cases that you've taken over the years, you wind up losing at the end. The the convict winds up being executed. Yes, that is exactly right. I've been representing death row inmates for around 20 years. I actually got into that line of work entirely by accident, although that's a different story. But my life is, I suppose, like a lot of other people's lives in the sense that you start to doing some. You start doing something that you didn't necessarily plan to do, and you wake up 20 years later and you haven't stopped doing it. The result of being an appellate lawyer for death row inmates in Texas over a period of 20 years, which is how long I've been doing it, is that you end up representing a whole lot of people because Texas executes a whole lot of people. As a matter of fact, when I started doing this work 20 years ago, the size of the death row populations in both Texas and California was about the same. And now California has a death row population of over 700 and the Texas death row population is half California's. And the reason is just because in that period of time, California's executed 11 people and Texas executes 25, 30, and some years 35 people a year. So as you suggested, most of my clients get executed. I've represented 110, 115 people. Two of those have walked out of prison entirely after we proved that they were innocent. Another couple who I believe, who I believe to have been innocent were executed. And then I have another three clients who I think are innocent who were still fighting their battles. We've represented, and when I say we, I do this with a team here of both lawyers and law students at the death penalty clinic that I run at the University of Houston. We've represented 20 or 25 people, I would say, who we've succeeded in getting off of death row and into the general prison population. And I'm currently representing probably 20 or 25, so if you just do the math, that means that I've had 55 or 60 clients of mine uh, be executed, which is a lot of people to be working with, literally up until the moment of their deaths. And I really thought that 
as a result of being around that much death for so long. I knew everything there was to know about death. I've been around people who were facing death. I've been around their moms, their dads, their brothers, their sisters, their sons, their daughters, their spouses or their partners. I've been around family members of murder victims, some of whom are very anxious to have the person who killed their loved one executed and others of whom are really not in favor of that execution at all. I've had close friends of mine be murdered. I've become close to people on death row who have been executed. So I've been around death for an awfully long time and around a whole lot of deaths. And I thought that I knew everything there was to know about it. As a matter of fact, my last book that you referred to called The Autobiography of an Execution was about or is about what it's like to be a death penalty lawyer. It's not a polemical book about the death penalty, but it was a book about what it's like to be surrounding yourself every day with death, essentially, and then try to go home at the end of the day and be a decent husband to my wife, be a decent father to our son, who's now 13. And it can be a challenge. But what I think that I learned at some point was that I didn't know nearly as much about death as I thought, which is where this second book came from, Things I've Learned from Dying. It came from this entirely new set of lessons that I would have thought I already knew just because I had seen so many deaths, but it turned out I learned that I didn't. Beyond seeing so many deaths and and learning about how people reacted in those circumstances, both the convicts that were being executed and, as you say, the families and the victims and everybody else surrounding it. Did you have a sense that you had become almost numb to the idea, that you dealt with it in a kind of clinical way, in many ways the way doctors deal with the reality of death? Absolutely. I thought that I had extremely thick emotional skin, so thick that there wasn't any dimension of a tragedy associated with death that could pierce that skin. And I think that in part, I developed that simply as a necessity. If you're going to be a death penalty lawyer in Texas and you're going to be emotionally disabled when your client gets executed, then you really can't be a death penalty lawyer in Texas because you're going to have another client who's facing execution in two or three weeks' time. And there are, in fact, people, I think, who come to Texas from other states where they've been death penalty lawyers, whether it's Florida, California, Virginia, where there are a lot of people on death row, and so they're very accustomed to the idea of a death penalty trial. But they come to Texas, and all of a sudden, you have all of these clients actually getting executed, not just sentenced to death, and it can be devastating. And I don't think most of those people are able to stay in the work. It's too devastating. And so I think in my own case, in part as a job requirement, I grew very thick skin. And then I suppose that I'm also temperamentally somebody who has a narrow, comparatively narrow emotional range so that when things go really well, I'm happy but I'm not popping the cork on champagne bottles. And the flip side of that is that when things don't go well at all, 
I'm sad, but I'm not suicidal. And I think that one problem with being somebody who has a real broad emotional range is that it just doesn't suit you, doesn't suit that person to being a death penalty lawyer. So, yes, absolutely. I think that over the course of my career, I had developed a fairly thick emotional skin. There would obviously occasionally be things that were capable of piercing that. And, in fact, I write about one of those things in this current book, Things I've Learned from Dying. But by and large, I wouldn't say that I was indifferent to death or that I had become indifferent to death, but what I would say is that it didn't affect me in a deep, dark, dramatic way. And if it had, I wouldn't have been able to continue doing the work. Is one of the reasons for that not only the consistency of doing the work, but is there a consistency, is there a pattern that you began to see in the way other people dealt with death, the way convicted convicts that were being executed dealt with death, the way their families dealt with it? Were there consistent patterns that seemed to repeat over and over again that in some ways helped insulate you from that kind of reaction? That's an excellent question, and I can't really say whether the patterns themselves helped insulate me just because I haven't thought deeply about it. But I would say off the top of my head, it seems like a very plausible hypothesis, and here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that I or any other death penalty lawyer in Texas are lawyers who represent people whose death is imminent. They've circled a date on a calendar. And generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, the people facing death have loved ones who are constantly in touch both with their loved one who's facing death, but also with the lawyers who are representing that person. And I think that if the lawyers are coming apart at the seams, if they are unraveling from the stress, that is bad, both for the client, but also for the people who love the client. And so I think that it's important for the lawyers to present a confidence in what they're doing, even though they know intellectually that the likelihood of saving this client is exceedingly remote, because that is something that both the client but also the family members of the clients uh, need. So I suspect that your that the premise of your question, that there might be something about the environment of being a death penalty lawyer that contributes to the, to the thickening of my emotional skin and the emotional skin of other death penalty lawyers, is exactly right. And that the need to help the family members get through it, the need to help the client get through it, make the death penalty lawyer, make me, um, I don't want to say indifferent emotionally, but less volatile emotionally. Which really segues into the other two things that you write about. What happened to your father-in-law when he got a terminal diagnosis of cancer? And also the emotional reaction you had 
with respect to the death of your family dog, the idea that both of these things were outside the norm, that while you thought you knew how to deal with death, you only knew how to deal with it on a certain plane, and that these didn't fit neatly into those boxes. Exactly correct. I thought I knew everything, and it turned out I was wrong because I encountered two other deaths that I would have thought of were going to be like all of the other deaths that I had encountered over the year. But as you suggest, they resided in completely different boxes. And even though we call them all death, they were really very different. And I wasn't nearly so prepared as I thought that I had been. One of them was, of course, the death of my father-in-law, who died very young. He was diagnosed with malignant melanoma when he was 58 years old, and it killed him in less than two years. He had just turned 60. And he is somebody who was both an intellectual, but also a very accomplished outdoorsman. He's one of these guys who was hiking across Nepal and Bhutan 35, 40 years ago before people were doing that and well before people who lacked really advanced outdoor skills were capable of doing it. And at the same time, he was an intellectual. He was a PhD in chemistry. He spent most of his professional career as a laboratory chemist and then the rest of his emotional career managing or the rest of his professional career managing other professional chemists. And when he received this diagnosis of melanoma, he believed immediately that it was going to destroy the two things that he lived for, which were his brain and his ability to climb mountains. And I was surprised by his reaction in the face of death. He had a wife who loved him enormously, two children, a son and a daughter. His daughter is, of course, who I'm married to. And I thought that he would be like a lot of my clients who want to postpone the inevitable for as long as they can so that they can continue to enjoy the very desiccated life that they have. His life, on the contrary, was a wonderful, exhilarating life. He would sail and he would windsurf and he would climb mountains. And I thought even if he can't do that, he can still spend time with this wonderful family that he and his wife have created. But in the face of death, he wasn't really sure he wanted to fight those battles. And that surprised me. And I ended up having to occupy this very difficult middle position between him and his family, in particular my wife, his daughter. His family wanted him to do everything that could possibly be done to try every last exotic therapy because they wanted him around, and they wanted him around even if it meant that he wasn't going to be able to climb mountains, and even if it meant he wasn't going to be able to continue to be a chemist. He wasn't sure if he wanted to be around under those limiting circumstances. So I was unquestionably in a position that was nothing like any position that I had experienced uh, before. And then, of course, the final story was the story of, of our dog. I've had dogs my entire adult life, and this particular dog my wife and I got before we were married, actually. And the dog was five years old when our son was born, and so this dog was a part of our son's life from the day he came home from the hospital. And, of course, many people have experienced 
with losing pets, one of the bad things about having a pet is that we outlive them, whether it's a cat or a dog or what have you. And so many people will have had something very close to the experience that I write about in the book of having to euthanize a pet who is afflicted by a terminal or fatal condition or disease. What made, I think, the story about Winona, that's the name of the, mm-hmm. of the dog, especially impactful for me and what also made it different from other pets that I've had, that I've had to euthanize, is that she went from being perfectly healthy to being at death's door literally overnight. Literally overnight. It was, it was acute liver failure that she suffered from. And so she went from being alive and vibrant to being essentially vegetative. And that was hard on me, of course. It was hard on my wife, of course. The pet owners are the people who have to instruct the veterinarian to end the pet's life. But it was also hard in a way that I hadn't anticipated on our son, who was losing this family pet, that he had never known the inside of our house without having her there. And I frankly thought that he had developed a somewhat thick emotional skin, too, from the time that he was old enough to have meaningful conversations with us. My wife and I would tell him what I did for a living, so he knew that I represented people who had killed somebody. He knew that my clients would be executed very frequently, and I write about this in my last book, not this book, but very frequently I would come home at the end of the day from a bad day at the office, and you have a lot of bad days at the office if you're a death penalty lawyer in Texas. And I hadn't yet learned how to leave my bad day at the office at the office. And so I'd bring it home with me, and I would be short with my my wife. I'd be short with our son. And I would apologize and explain to my, our son in particular. My wife obviously intuited what was happening, but explained to our son in particular that I just had a bad day, and I had had to tell a mom and a dad that their son was about to be executed. And so I thought that he, because of this frankness that we had had with him about what I do and what the consequences of what I do frequently are, that he understood at an emotional level what it means to lose somebody who you love. And that, of course, turned out to be something else that I was very wrong about. And I explore not only his relationship with the dog in the book, but also the relationship between my wife and me on the one hand and him on the other when it came to making decisions about the dog and explaining to him what was happening and that sort of thing. In a lot of ways, that's the hardest part of the story for me to tell because as any pet owner knows, there's a real gravity about making that decision. In the case of my client, I wasn't responsible for the murder that got him on death row, and I wasn't responsible for imposing the death sentence. In the case of my father-in-law, I obviously wasn't responsible for the melanoma, which is what killed him, and I also wasn't responsible for the choice of therapies. He was making those decisions himself, but in the choice of our dog, of course, my wife and I were responsible both for putting the dog in the position that might have at least contributed to her developing this liver failure and then finally for 
choosing what sort of therapies to pursue and when to give up on them. To what extent did your emotional reaction to the illness and ultimately the death of the dog, to what extent was the power of that emotion a way that allowed it to be safe to have the emotional reaction that you might have had all these years to all of these failed death penalty cases in a way, that because this was different, because it was the dog as opposed to one of your clients or even a family member, that it allowed you a kind of cathartic way to release those emotions that that you had been suppressing for so long? I think that it's possible that I was releasing emotions that I had been suppressing. I certainly think that's possible. I wouldn't argue against that interpretation too strenuously, but I also think that it's possible that I was experiencing entirely different emotions, that I was affected. I was affected, not just that I was expressing the way I was affected for the first time, but that I was actually affected uh, differently. This, this, this dog, and I talk about it in the book, I mean, this dog who was Winona, I mean, she spent... 24 hours a day with me. When I wasn't traveling, I was with that dog all day, every day. She came with me to the office. If I had hearings down at the courthouse, she went with me to the courthouse and stayed in the car until I came back. She used to go with me up to the prison. So I spent an enormous amount of time with this dog. I talk in the story about how, I talk in the book, I'm sorry, at one point about how six months after uh, she had died, I went out to go for a run one morning and found myself hallucinating that I was hearing her toenails clicking on the pavement next to me because she used to run with me when I would go running in the morning. And I think that it's possible that I was expressing emotion, that it was a cathartic experience, as you say, but I also think that I might have been experiencing something different because of the role that she played in my life as compared to the role that either clients or even my father-in-law, for that matter, played in my life. And then, of course, the other piece of it is that I'm sure that the family members of my clients who were executed were deeply, deeply hurt and pained by the death of their loved one. I'm sure that that's true. And I'm sure that my wife and my brother-in-law and my mother-in-law were deeply, deeply pained by the death of my father-in-law, even more than I was. And I was pained because he was somebody who I loved very much. But there isn't really any pain that is comparable, at least in my own experience, to the pain that a parent suffers when his or her children are suffering, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or some other type of sadness. It creates a genuine, deep hurt and sadness and unhappiness in the parent. And so part of, I think, what I was experiencing when the dog died, when Winona died, was that Lincoln, that's the name of our son, that Lincoln was suffering in this deep and profound way that I probably should have expected or anticipated, but I didn't. And 
maybe one reason that I didn't is because even in the case of my clients, even in the case of our father-in-law, there was a lot of time to prepare. And in Winona's case, there wasn't. And I think that I talk a little bit in the book about how the amount of time that somebody has to prepare for the death of a loved one, whether it's a human being or a pet, very much affects the relationship that that person has with the person who's facing death and also very much affects the way that that person continues her or his own life after that death happens. Coming back to the work that you do, how did these experiences, the death of Winona, also the death of your father-in-law, how, if at all, has it impacted the way you look at the reality of death in the context of death row, in the context of your work, and even thinking about it, even though you're an appellate lawyer, even thinking about it in terms of the way juries look at and understand death? All of these experiences the death of my father-in-law and our dog in particular, have made me much more attentive to not just the person who is facing death, but to all of the relationships that are going to be altered by that person's death, but that also are going to be affected very dramatically once the imminence of that person's death becomes clear. So naturally, all mothers love their children and will suffer great pain if their children die before they do. I didn't need to learn that lesson. I already knew it. It was obvious. All human beings know it. What I think that I learned, among other things, that I wanted to write about in this book is how when a death sentence is pronounced, it affects not just the person who has received that pronouncement, but all of the other people in that person's orbit. And I knew that intellectually. I'm sure that I knew it intellectually. But I hadn't hadn't lived it. I hadn't had it under my roof. And so I didn't exactly know what it meant to say that the relationship between a father and a daughter, for example, is altered in a very dramatic and important way when either one, the father or the daughter, receives a death sentence, whether the death sentence is a literal legal death sentence or whether it's a death sentence in the form of a pronouncement from a doctor that this person has a fatal disease and has a week or two weeks or a month left to live. And the experiences that I had of observing my father-in-law die, observing our dog die, made me appreciate the way those relationships change from the moment that the imminence of death is identified. And that's something that either I hadn't noticed at all up until then or hadn't focused on in any concrete way. David Dow, the book is Things I've Learned from Dying, a book about life. It's just published by 12. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed talking to you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 